freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hey, folks. I've got James Lindsay today. Conceptual James. Cynical theories. This is the guy. This is the one. James is the one who figured all this out. Too late, of course. It's too late for all of us. Is it, James? I don't know. It's really weird. I think about this question a lot. Thanks for having me, by the way. Um, My pleasure. Thanks for I think about on. this question a lot because I'm not the one who figured. I mean, Thomas Sowell figured all this stuff out like 30 years ago. That's the and, scary part, right? <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll notice also that the Dr. Soul is black, and so he has all the street cred to be able to talk about this stuff in the current paradigm, and still nobody listened to him. And so there's this weird phenomenon that I haven't been able to piece together is, you know, you have to have the right message, and you have to have it at the right time, or nobody will listen. And he clearly had the right message. I mean, I basically could probably, I have, I could probably just plagiarize the guy and look like a super genius, but. Um, Cause right now you look pretty, you don't look very smart at all. No, I'm, well, I mean, I'm told repeatedly on a daily basis, what an idiot I am. So <laughs> <laughs> how I don't understand anything and how my understanding of literally everything is wrong. I even had a guy recently argue with me. It's so funny. He, he picked the wrong day, just to give you an example of my life. He picked the wrong day. You know, it's not like a falling down Michael Douglas wrong day kind of thing. But he, he was like, I said something about Marxism and abolishing private property. And he was like, you idiot, you don't understand Marxism at all. Why don't you just tell me one time that Karl Marx ever said anything about private property? And I was like, I literally had just for something else I was working on had to read the relevant chapter, which is the second chapter of the Communist Manifesto, where he says that communism can be summarized in one sentence, the abolition of private property. Like, that's a direct Karl Marx <laughs> quote from the the most relevant document. And it's like, but yeah, I'm the idiot. I'm constantly the idiot. So I could plagiarize Thomas Sowell, look extremely intelligent. But the problem was, is for whatever reason, when he was saying this stuff 30 years ago, 20 years ago, so eloquently and so accurately, nobody listened to him. Just nobody listened to him. Well, um, I mean, did anyone listen to Thomas Sowell? Anyone other than conservatives? Well, that's the no problem. And, and so this actually cuts right to the heart of how their little magic trick is working in the whole world. Is they have very, and I mean, leftists have very successfully branded conservative as dumb and evil. And what's happened is the broad swath of the middle has imbibed upon this to the point, even the center right has largely imbibed upon this myth to the point where once somebody like Thomas Sowell is branded as conservative, and they obviously try to brand me as conservative constantly, nobody listens to them any longer except other conservatives. So they've, they've in effect, ghettoized conservatism. And if that spell ever breaks, if that spell ever breaks, well, it's over. The over the, that spell over the middle? Yeah, exactly. The spell over the middle. No, um, let me, I just want to take a hit a hype. I'm going to open an open a new tab. You're not conservative. I don't think I am. No, I consider myself wholly independent now. I'm very Kanye West, I think, for myself. Um, I, I don't identify, like, I, I read conservative oh, political I, philosophy, and I think, well, yeah, but, and then I read you know, kind of classical liberal political philosophy. And I'm like, yeah, mostly in a little bit of, but, and then I read this leftist stuff and I'm like, holy crap, no. Um, and so I know, unfortunately, I mean, I know what I'm for. I'm for freedom, which puts me in that classical liberal box, but I'm certainly not, uh, you know, I, I, I veer close to Burke, but the religion loses me. And I've, yeah, it's so you're it's, the yeah, you're the guy you're the guy Michael Knowles warned me about. You, you know, it, the conservatives <laughs> without religion, but you're not a libertarian. Mm -mm. You're just oh, I mean, 
at the end of the day, if you're not with them, you're either conservative or a Nazi. And every conservative is on the way to becoming a Nazi anyway. So, all right, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, mean, I don't want to. I mean, that's literally neo-Marxism right there, though. I mean, not to get ahead of ourselves, but that's literally what what Herbert Marcuse argued through the 60s. And Herbert Marcuse being obviously the father of the new left, the guy who switched leftism in the direction that we're now suffering under in the 1960s and early 1970s, he literally made that argument. He made the argument that there are only two possible outcomes of late advanced capitalism, either fascism or socialism swoops in and saves the day. Those, he makes that argument in an essay on liberation, 1969, very, very clearly. He freaks out in counter-revolution revolt in 1972, where he realizes that his you know socialist revolution is probably getting snatched away by you know the the evil conservative forces um you can tell that he's getting frustrated and desperate because he doesn't really name communism up until seven the 70s and then all of a sudden it's communism this communism that like you know he, he rips the mask off and just goes goes for goes for broke but um he made that argument it was we only have two options you know he uh, accepted the belief of marx that capitalism is an unstable situation that's going to collapse. That liberalism is an unstable situation. It's going to collapse. This is the whole neo-Marxist project through the 60s and 40s, even 50s and 60s. I was about and, to say he came of age. He came of age in an era when that was still the the, the socialist international position. That's right. That's but, right. And there and there was an international. Right. Yeah. And and so he he fundamentally believed that. I mean, granted, you give him a little charity. He had to flee the Nazis in, in 33, um, you know, got out early, but he had to flee the Nazis. He watched the rise of fascism in Europe for real, like right there. And, you know, he was brought in by the OSS to fight that during World War II. So he was dedicated to the fight against that literal fascism without being able to see that his own program, which literally calls for the censorship and pre-censorship of conservatives in his own words, uh, is also fascistic. Like he couldn't see that he he had become he, the enemy. He was he was not alone, and he was not alone among intellectuals. What is it about this about intellectuals and their capacity to self deceive on this on this on this issue, in particular? You know, I mean, I you could you know you you can go through all kinds of uh, somersaults about the means of production and about the labor theory of value, and about all kinds of stuff out of Marx. That's, that's the kind of stuff you can really have a good discussion about. Mm -hmm. But the censorship and the freedom piece, how is it that that... All right, so let me, let me start with this. Let me try to answer part of my own question. Yeah. We understand that Hitler wrote Mein Kampf while he was in prison for insurrection. So the lesson evidently to be deduced from that is that if the very worst people are given a platform and allowed to be heard under a liberal notion, such as the one that Weimar employed while Hitler was in prison, all the things. And, I, and the problem I think with that analysis is that Mein Kampf isn't what gave Hitler emergency powers. And Mein Kampf isn't what got him appointed as chancellor. I and mean, Mein Kampf isn't, Mein Kampf was, this, was a book that he made a lot of money off, but I don't think there was a, it wasn't, it wasn't, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, Mussolini <laughs> made fun of Mein Kampf actually, he said that it was terrible. Um, <laughs> it, it, true, but, uh, yeah, so I mean, that is the summary of what, what they seem to believe is that if these ideas are allowed out into the world, if they're not contained, then fascism is going to take root. And, you know, the, the, the history of the United States has not borne that out. Uh, bad ideas come out, people, not only do they argue against them, which is what we always talk about, oh, you know, bad speech requires more speech. Arguments, argue against it. No, they get made fun of is what happens. They get laughed out of the room most of the time. And it's only when you create some kind of a nasty power vacuum where certain positions are not allowed to be spoken about, 
that you have extremism being able to step into that gap. It's in fact the censorship that creates the vacuum that makes something like Mein Kampf and the arguments that followed from Hitler after Mein Kampf attractive to people. Because what's happening is you have some lunatic who's saying utterly lunatic things with little salt and pepper of truth that nobody else is allowed to say sprinkled in. And that truth, that truth, that thing nobody's allowed to talk about attracts people. They're like, this guy must be onto something. And what's that thing? That thing for our era is racism. Sure. That was, and, and can you tell me when the moment was when this amorphous power, and you know, I'm not, we're not talking about a, people sitting around a conference room table, but when it, it, someone figured out, or maybe I'm wrong, that by identifying a third rail that no one could possibly no one of good faith could possibly take the wrong position on that that would be the door that opened the way to critical this studies that studies and the other studies what do you have a sense of when that transformation took place i think it took place in stages actually i don't think it was like a moment for example there there are writings for example if you read from from dr belladad a defected leader of the communist party or if you read um well, any of the kind of defected, what, what, what is the, uh, the, the guy who is the black communist party leader? I forgot his name. Um, uh, I can't believe I forgot his name, but uh, he had defected and wrote a book about how the communists had intended to use race from the 1920s and thirties to, to wedge America open. They knew it would, would work. They just didn't know how to get it done. Marcuse. Well, in, I, I think, I think there was no traction yet because racism was still not a problem. In other words, it, was, it wasn't a problem in polite society to be racist. Correct. Correct. And so this is where it gets very interesting as we look at Marcuse. Again, I, I reference, we could talk about One Dimensional Man in 64. We could talk about uh, Essay on Liberation in 69. There he's writing, he's tapping into some weird idea. And what he's recognizing is, oh, wow. And this is something that he and Max Horkheimer, another critical theorist, thought simultaneously through the 60s. They're like, wow. There's actually interviews, by the way, of Horkheimer saying this. The, 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 the capitalist society is working. It doesn't immiserate people like Marx thought. It makes their lives better. And so what, what um, Marcuse says is that, that capitalism figured out how to stabilize the working class. The working class is happy. In other words, they're never going to become a proletariat. They're never going to rise up. And so he said that we need to find a new source for this revolutionary energy. And he identifies, in his own words, the ghetto population. Now, hold on. So in other words... Even though the problem we sought to solve by revolution, which was also supposed to be the path to revolution, doesn't exist anymore. We need we still want revolution. Why? Because we'll be in charge of the revolution. Exactly. Even though so, so we need to just find a different path. But by That's ver- right. but by acknowledging that the workers have been bought off by toasters and TV sets, what an awful, terrible thing. They, and cool cars and babes. And babes. They acknowledge that there isn't really a, prole- a proletarian pressure for revolution, but the vanguard is looking for work. Exactly. Okay, please continue. Yeah, yeah. So he writes explicitly there that the energy is located in the ghetto populations. That's what he says. And in the black militancy movements. And this so is the late at, 60s? This is 69, yeah. Late okay, 60s. Okay, so, so you've got also your Black Panthers, Malcolm mm-hmm. X interesting things people are actually and, and and intellectual things yeah so they're ra- very radical very radical but far more intellectual than today's left basically what he starts to see is that if we can somehow or meaning leftists can somehow link up the student intelligentsia and the professor intelligentsia on the left to infuse this new consciousness, this neo-Marxist way of thinking into those movements. And if we can then cobble together them in solidarity with the other liberation movements, for example, the Viet Cong uh, and the South American liberation fronts, uh, if we can somehow cobble that together in what he calls, literally he uses word solidarity, then we can have a new basis for revolution. And this, of course, you know, got taken up by his student, for example, Angela Davis, who's a famous black woman, radical activist, got in lots of trouble, ended up backing off of her her more militant activity and going into K through 12 education 
policy and reform, uh, if we want to call and, it reform. And, and what could possibly go wrong in K through 12 education? What could possibly go wrong by taking over the children? And uh, I mean, that was a Hitler project, right? It was, it, you know, disagree with us all you want. We have your kids. That was, I can't quote Hitler exactly on that, but that he knew what he was doing. And so they, they go into K through 12 education, they start building up this new program, and they start infusing themselves into other neo-Marxist kind of positions, whether, you know, the Combahee River Collective comes up and puts out its statement in the 70s, and then we have the, the critical legal studies movement building up, um, very progressive neo-Marxist approach to law, building up through the 70s, gaining steam by the mid-1980s, they say, well, we're not paying enough attention. They get agitated into having to pay more attention to these Black radical voices, and they show up and they say, well, the whole critical legal studies movement is racist because it excluded us for so long, you know, and bada-bing, bada-boom, critical legal studies melts down just like you would expect because polite society has moved in the post-civil rights era into that being the ultimate taboo. Critical race theory is born out of the ashes three years later in Madison, Wisconsin. Technically, people were doing it. You know, Bell wrote race racism in American law in 1970, but 1989 is when it got its name. The so-called foundational conference was in Madison, Wisconsin in 89 in a convent. Delgado described it as an odd setting for a bunch of Marxists. Um, so, it dep depends on what order. Right. <laughs> the well, the thing is, is that's when they realized that, you know, Put, I think it's ultimately, if you wanted to pick like a actual moment when they realized that it would work, it's when they conquered the critical legal studies movement by accusing, by the same mechanism we see everywhere. They showed up, they got invited. In fact, they agitated until they got invited. They showed up, this is in 1986. The only thing they did was took, took the stage or whatever the circumstances were and accused the entire program of racism, watched everything polarize because people wanted to get that stain off of them worse than Lady Macbeth. People went berserk and then the whole thing collapses and they get to mop up the, the, you know, the, the, the people they radicalized, I guess. And what's the role of Randall Kennedy at this point? I mean, here, he, he's a prominent black critical legal studies guy. He's already at Harvard by 89, right? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, this is what all of them were doing at that point, right? Is they were coming in and you see like Derek Bell, for example, coming in and he's doing this very kind of peculiar stuff. People don't realize how peculiar Derek Bell was, you know, he, he's writing these so-called, um, what are they, epistolaries or something like that. He's, he's writing fake letters to fictitious people and calling that legal scholarship. He's like, oh, you know, you know, I forgot Asa somebody or another. He's writing fake letters to somebody that's the, the alleged editor of a, of, of, a, of a publishing house that doesn't exist. And he's talking about how he experiences all this racism. And then this is for him some kind of like fictional characters with fictional letters. And this is a legal argument. And he's doing very strange scholarship. And then people are like, this is very strange. What are you doing? And then he's like, I'm black, you're racist, you know, and they do this same kind of this this sort of activity was happening again and again. So when we look at Harvard, Harvard Law, you see, for example, Derek Bell gets frustrated, he decides to leave. And I think this was around 89. He decides to leave Harvard Law and they have to replace him somehow. And the students that he had been radicalized throw this gigantic fit that he has to be replaced with a scholar of color who's also a critical race theorist. And there's this famous protest that happens there and the whole thing kind of blows up and blows out. Um, of course, that's exactly a couple of years later, what famously, everybody's seen the video now that pays attention, at least conservatives have all seen the video where, where Barack Obama comes out and is so proud of having like been involved in this or whatever, and how his, his role in, in, in Dr. Community Bell's, activating, community yeah. organizing. Well, I mean, even just in the protests at Harvard about, about Bell. And so it's like, okay. And so you can kind of start to see how this stuff started to worm its way into everything. It's, it's the same trick. Over well, it's not and over only and over everything. Again. If you can get it done, once you get it done at Harvard. Oh, yeah. The rest just pop, the other fields just populate. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, everybody's going to copy that, which. Not only copy that, but you're now, that's your source. That's your seeding. Exactly. Um, you know, the mothership for, for all the future <laughs> faculty members and all the judicial clerks. No, that's right. All of the kind of like, not 
highest tier, but like second highest tier of society, that one that's going to have the most resentment built in that it's not at the top is seeding out of these Ivies, especially Harvard, but also Stanford and Yale uh, and poor Princeton now and then. Um, and, and so, you know, it's that it's that upper crust of the administrative class. And then, like you said, that the, the judiciary and all of these other things are, are being seeded by that. So these these manipulations, which are which are had taken place first with the CLS movement, and then later at Harvard directly, and then from there at one thing after another, the 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 magic sauce was discovered here in the '80s. Though was kind of the point because you said, "Where did this happen?" Magic sauce was show up, accuse them that they're racist, watch the meltdown, scoop up the people who agree with us, demonize everybody who doesn't, and wash, rinse, repeat. Go to a new thing, repeat go to a new thing, repeat, which is funny because, you know, I think you would know, but I've talked about many times in the past, there's that paper from 2016, where they describe women's studies as a virus. It's a literally, and they describe how that's the exact mechanism by which, you know, they should go infect other things. You show up, you know, start brainwashing people, cause, cause uh, uh, controversy and polarization and basically conquer the institution like a cell. And they're proud of this fact. Um, they should be. It's excellent activism. They've, for purposes, from the perspective of achieving their goals, it's been brilliantly executed. It's essentially bloodless, unless you count the people whose heads were busted open for being in the wrong place during the 2020 riots. Um, but the institutions managed to remain intact to the to all appearances, except inside, except right. the core the core of them. But they look great. Their uh, endowments are as flush as ever. They're still, people are still bribing admissions officers to get their kids into them. It's a perfect operation. It is. It's, it's actually incredibly uh, effective. And it, it, was, it was very strategic to start to, I mean, they read their Gramsci. Once he finally got brought into to the American context in the '60s and translated into English in the '70s, they read their Gramsci. They knew to you know you have to go in, you have to create a counter hegemony within the institutions, slowly change the institutions from within with, within. Realize it's generational warfare, et cetera. And like you said, it ends up bloodless. Well, I, I'm going to add though, it ends up bloodless so far. Um, and I'm not even talking about 2020. I'm talking about like eventually these things collapse and things don't go well usually when that happens and so my so let's talk about eventually let's talk about eventually well my job right now is to prevent eventually that's okay how so i view myself right now so eventually the eventually that you mean is a in the nature of a left fascistic takeover or in other words an affirmative police state Sure. Where 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 discipline is enforced by coercion and all the things, all the all those bad things. I see two possible pictures of ugly eventually right now. One of which is exactly what you just described. They get their dictatorship of the anti-racist, which will eventually be some kind of a weird high-tech fascistic cultural clampdown that leads into, you know, other forms of clampdown, like house arrest for COVID turns into house arrest for systemic racism or whatever else, you know, and for climate change and for whatever the, the, the argument de jour happen or, uh, yeah, happens to be. Now, the other though is, and this is, I'm now feeling more likely, in fact, I believe it may have actually begun, is that their program begins to be seen through and begins to collapse around them. And that's a scary proposition because that's when they're going to be desperate and they're going to, to, to apply that force in ways they wouldn't otherwise. The overreach that the accelerationists, as they're called, are often looking for to reveal to people just how fascistic their program is. In other words, um, this is the cornered, the cornered animal yeah. danger. Well, well, you know, imagine that you just spent 50 years and God knows how much money and effort and time slowly, slowly infiltrating all these institutions with your perfect crime. And then right at the moment before you actually can actualize your plan, people figure it out and they're like, oh, hell no, get out. What are you going to do? But you control most of the institutions. I mean, they're going to, the, the reaction is, you know, we're going to force this now. And 
I don't know what's going to happen because if they try the, the, everybody kind of knows the powder keg of America right now and of the world, the Western world is whoever uses force first justifies the other side to start using force. This is why it's a, such a dangerous situation that the vast majority of the guns are in right wing hands. It's like, please don't shoot anybody. Please don't shoot anybody. Please don't shoot anybody. And isn't because it amazing? Isn't it amazing that for all the talk about white right wing violence and as terrible as the incidents of lunatics shooting up synagogues and mosques, it happens. But in terms of high level assassinations, or anything of a truly strategic value for nothing, nothing, no, nothing, nothing. It's it's mind it's it's mind boggling actually, because right. there are a lot of figures in the American power structure who are really reviled. Not only you know certainly by the far right wing, but but even by concern people who are and who are and, and who deserve it. And of course they have their security, but they're safe. Yeah. It's a practical yeah. matter. It's a, you know, it's an, you don't want to say it out loud because like, you, you know, as you're just getting at, God forbid one, one lunatic is all it takes to screw up the whole thing. And the whole house of cards on both sides comes tumbling down. No, that's right. Um, that, that's exactly right. And I think it's there's this weird detente that's, that's created a tremendous amount of tension and pressure, and then also what it seems to be very weird behavior uh, around the fact that I think most people perceive because they've done this long, slow, insidious, bloodless, revolutionary attempt that the second one side or the other uses violence, it all is going to go nuts and. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult uh, to to prevent at that point. And there's a very strong perception among conservatives, certainly on social media, that there are chaos agents, there are people in government very, very motivated to trigger a right-wing violent movement, not only to the extent of calling, you know, a tepid riot an insurrection, which is, the whole, you know, the Goebbels level propaganda, but, you know, trying to really spark a real armed uprising that would justify probably just about anything, martial law, what have you. Right. Yeah. I mean, I am fairly sympathetic to that, that view myself. Um, it's, you know, I very frequently see myself, I just saw somebody on, on the Twitter talking about that there needs to be a conservative march on Washington on 9-11. And I'm like, no. Yeah, I saw no, that also. What are you no, thinking? The, we The streets don't belong to us. It's not an option. You can't no, there say- There needs well, to be a relentless meme war on 9-11 or something, but not do not show up. Do not. And I, 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 I think it was this morning. I've lost track of time myself, but when I woke up, it, it occurred to me as I was thinking through people that I have dealt with in the last few years and asking myself, okay, well, so who's, who's the Fed? I mean, even if, even if only one-tenth of this right-wing fantasy is accurate, that one-tenth has been enough to cause people not to have the level of trust that they otherwise might, they probably just as well that they don't, but it makes it harder to organize. It does. It and you have to, does. who's in your telegram channel? Who's in your clubhouse room? This who's... is why I don't have a new discourses chat channel at all. Uh, because we tried one briefly at the very beginning and it was infiltrated not by a fed, but just by a goober within days. <laughs> You know, just one of these like lackeys that follows or follows us around on social media and just to try to like piss on our cornflakes every time we say anything. Um, so it's like, well, if that can happen, you know, somebody who actually knows what they're doing is going to be far less obvious and whatever else. And so it does. It makes it very difficult to organize. Um, it makes it very, I mean, it, I feel, I hate to use Harry Potter analogies because it's like a children's book and all of this, but it's very Order of the Phoenix level kind of stuff it's like it's all got to be super underground and 
it's unfortunate we don't have like secret keepers and all of this crap with magic spells backing it up, but it, it's very much like that. It's very difficult. Um, and of course, they want it to be that way. The people who want to maintain control. And I actually don't think that that's the woke. I think the woke are being used and they will discover this sooner or later. Um, well, there's been a lot of talk. I mean, Jack Posobiec and a number of others have have pointed out that the the the, the, uh, the intelligence community leaks that have damaged Biden or revealed Biden, and there seems to be some more receptivity among corporate media to mm -hmm. play in this sandbox, mm -hmm. demonstrate that they're not about keeping Democrats in power. They're about keeping themselves in power. That's right. That's right. And it's, Trump it was a, a partially bipartisan. Oh yeah, that's it. Trump was an outsider. Trump is rather smart and quite savvy. He's incredibly quick-witted. Um, he's incredibly bullish and doesn't care. He's also unfortunately a bit undisciplined. Um, I, he's very intelligent, but I don't think he's a. Uh, he's not exactly a deep study of a lot of the things he talks about. Um, he just kind of talks about them in his own way. And so, you know, he he was a gigantic threat to this, though, because he wasn't in on the program. The only parts of the program he was in on, and there's a lot of people who are mad, Trump betrayed us or whatever. And it, the only parts of the program he was in on were the parts where he had kind of fallen for a line, I think, that he didn't realize was a line. You know, they were trying to feed him stuff that was incorrect and he fell for it um and that he wasn't deeply like desantis doesn't fall for these things as easily uh he does a lot more of his own research he gets a lot deeper he that he scares the crap out of them for that he also reason. has a military background i i think that the people with a military background are better you know unless they've just worked in the you know peeling potatoes but they understand control and command and mm -hmm. you know different levels of course depending on, on their experience and you know they have they have some kind of background to to assess it. now listen you said because you said what your your job now is to prevent the what was the, the eventual. Word again? the eventual how you're doing your job besides writing books and not having a telegram ch telegraph channel and telegram telegraph it is order. mostly writing and speaking. Um, so like I said earlier in our discussion, I think that where this kind of these kind of ugly eventualities exist is when power vacuums exist and where truth vacuums exist and truth and power vacuums are very strongly related. And so, you know, I'm not terribly popular with my former cohort, as you may have noticed. Um, I refer to them as very smart people and they have referred to me by words that you're not allowed to say out loud unless you get canceled. Um, and they have canceled me. They've removed me from boards. They've removed me from projects. They have, you know, bashed me on social media, et cetera. They've written funny articles about me. It's, it's all fun. But the truth is that I and say you mean, things, you mean people in academia or yeah, people... people or, or in kind of the media academia, tangential media space. Um, and so polite society generally speaking the smarters than you uh or than than all of us really uh they i say things that you're not allowed to say and they think i'm crazy but it's because i think that if there's not somebody who's speaking from a position of principle and a position of values which i actually think i am uh into this space to say no this is what's happening this is what's really going on then people who want to invite uh the the leftists to helicopter rides become much more attractive. And I don't really want a Pinochet regime in the United States as a response to this stupid woke stuff, especially given that I know that the puppet masters behind that are going to get control of it fast anyway. I don't want Franco. Franco was a disaster for Spain. I know he has some big fans over there, but I don't think it was like, I don't think it was a great thing. I don't want that direction. Um, I would love to see us actually take the American core and write the ship and start to use what the cultural Marxists identified in the twenties, in the thirties as the greatest repellent to communism in the history of mankind, which is solid individual American type values or Western values to, in, to invigorate those again, and to speak into that space by saying true things that normally 
polite society isn't allowed to. So the primary work that I'm doing is writing very honestly and speaking very honestly to the largest and largest number of audiences that I can to speak into that space without just standing up there. Like I went to a thing recently and the guy stood on the stage and he's just like, we're not going to take it anymore. And I'm like, uh Oh, uh, you know, it's like less of that, more of, you know, where are our principles? What do we actually want to see accomplished? If you look, you know, the Khmer Rouge is a, wasn't exactly a good project, but from what I understand, and I still need to research this to back it up, it ended by enough Cambodians getting mad and telling them, get out of power. And it was virtually bloodless. Very, very few people were tried. Very, very little violence occurred. And the Khmer Rouge was pushed out of power just by large numbers of people who didn't want them there any longer. And if we can do that in the American sense, taking over our school boards again, by just not taking them over in a, in a militant way, but in the sense of filling them with reasonable, normal, everyday people who understand that the point of schooling is something to do with educating and nurturing children, as opposed to pushing some kind of a political agenda, uh, then you know that's a big step forward. If we can see this like, oh, well, something's gone terribly wrong with our our national politics and in certain states our state politics and we can use every legal democratic means even if we have to play on a tilted playing field to do it to push back and to again reclaim power in a in a i want to say civilized way then i want to encourage that but what i fear is like i said earlier in the conversation is that if those those bad eventualities happen when there is a truth vacuum, where there are true things that are happening that nobody with any sense will talk about. And so what I want to do is encourage people to just speak the truth into that vacuum from a position of normal, everyday, common sense, American values, so that we don't have to have the helicopter ride, Pinochet, uh, you know, response as a means to push out people, because clearly these people don't want to let go of power. They're not going to let go of it easily. So it's going to require a lot of effort, but to have that effort done by legal means with principle behind it. And so what I, I, I'm doing is to is trying to speak inconvenient truths into that space so that there are voices who aren't actually extremists speaking those truths, because that will make them attractive if they're the only ones saying it. Now, you talk about normal American values. Mm -hmm. And actually, as a side note, I said for a very long time, everyone who talked about Trump being a fascist, which was just so preposterous, he or even, or, or even a reactionary, he was a normal guy. He is. He, he's a smarter than average normal guy, but not an intellectual, which is right. pretty normal. He's a and he, he his reaction to all the things that he opposed was exactly what normal people in flyover country and also in, you know, cowering under their living room tables, uh, uh, dinettes, uh, you know, in their tiny apartments in, in, in coastal cities, also are thinking. That's right. But what occurs to me is when you talk about American, about normal values, and I guess I think this also links up with the Marxist criticism or, or the Marxist um, analysis of where the where the vulnerability is, is that we've got a consumerism problem in this country. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has really unhinged, look, your, your official values and your practical values, there's always a gap between them. And capitalism, as opposed to free markets, but the idea that money, money really rules and American class is, you know, we, we, that we do have class distinctions and they're based on wealth mm -hmm. and the cult of the celebrity, which is really at least as much about money as it is about beauty. Um, all these things I think are big cultural problems for people trying to get across common sense mm -hmm. because all the normal everyday things that everybody likes on the one hand, on the other hand, we still want our football. We still want our, you know, to be entertained. We still want our fast food. Is there any way you think, you know, and I think another, who was it? Was it, was it Mao or was it Lenin who said that the Americans will sell us the rope that we'll use to hang them? I think that that's a, uh, a, a bastardization of a Lenin. The capitalists <laughs> will sell you the rope that we use. Well, not the, right, that's right. 
Right. Yeah, so I think that's Lenin that said that. I think it was Lenin and Mao spoke that's Chinese. A, <laughs> right. That's a joke because Lenin spoke Russian. Oh, well, Lenin's, oh, and, and um, so they couldn't have, well, neither one of them said it in English. That it was, was a joke. It was a joke. That was, a, all right, listen, I'm, I, I'm trying to focus here with laser light. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, listen, you know me. I'm a, I'm a serious guy on Twitter. Yeah. I read a lot of history mm -hmm. and great empires frequently fall. Well, they all fall, except for the Soviet empire. And what, one reason the Soviet, and it's notable, they fall when there's too much money. There's too much money. Mm -hmm. that, that's not the story with, with, with Soviet communism. But there's a, there is a, an elite in this country that not only at the actual decision makers, the puppet masters, but a thin but significant crust of people who are making so much money now. They're so bought into what works for them that they're not inclined to be bothered and to listen to James Lindsay talking or writing. And without their support, or, or at least support from among them, in other words, there are no uh, Orange County Republicans anymore. There are, but the point is that there was a time when Republicans, when, when wealthy people could also be conservative. Right now, Wall Street and the corporate world are controlled by woke, woke philosophy. There doesn't seem to be any semblance of shareholder democracy going on. That course, that's never really has been. How do we? How do we? Don't we have to kind of reshuffle the deck in order for ideas like we're, ones we're talking about to, to gain traction in the in America and get the kind of changes you described? Uh, yes, to a degree. I will point out, by the way, there is a tremendous irony having read more Marcuse than anybody ever should. It's hard <laughs> to read him. And I don't want to linger in the history and the philosophy, but because uh, I have another point. But the Marcuse, it's really weird to read him because you can see the things he's warning about that he thinks are bad are happening, but they're happening with his philosophy. So he, it's like you have this sense, is he going to be, would he be for this or against this? But he's so bent on his revolution and his liberation that I think he would be for it. But he, I think he'd also be complaining that it's been co-opted by evil en entities at this point where he's still alive. And so he's very critical of the consumerism being out of control. And I think he's not wrong about that it was happening at the time and is still happening and where it leads, which is this kind of relentless kind of bubble economy that's eventually going to burst. Uh, it, it's an unsustainable direction. And it, it does make people, he calls them one dimensional man, you know, it, it does make people a bit one dimensional and hollow and they're not thinking more deeply. He also is surprisingly keen and it's, it's really funny at the moment to read it. He's very critical of technocracy. He's very critical. He thinks that technocracy is very dangerous, but of course that's the only way his stupid revolution is ever going to come about. And it's exactly what we're dealing with now. So the technocrats have taken up his program uh, and it's woke derivatives and because Marcuse really becomes the source. Now that said, but as a Marxist, that would make sense because that, that removes the, that, re that undercuts the labor theory of value and yeah, yeah. undercuts the, the entire proletarian enterprise. Right, right. Which is a problem, which is a problem for us as well, as we see. Sure. I mean, I okay. think that like, I think MAGA is class consciousness and they just are mad because they don't want socialism. They want freedom. Um, you know, the class, the class conscious, the proletariat has awakened and it, it points the opposite direction that they thought they wanted it to. But um, the other thing that I want to say is with this upper crust that you're talking about, I've encountered that problem, of course, firsthand. Uh, I'll go and speak at these kind of big donor events I get invited to. And the people who are roughly in my age cohort, um, which would be the sons and daughters of the big, you know, big entities are all 100% on board with me. And then the parents who actually run the show, though, they know how business works. They know how everything is. They know, they already know. They don't need to hear some crazy young upstart like myself gibber about you know, a hundred year long plan to take over America from within. And they, it's been very difficult to reach them, but that's actually started to happen. Um, I now, I, you know, I obviously wouldn't name any names, but I've now had contact with a number of these, you know, kind of, we might call them, as you said, very thin crust 
people who are all of a sudden freaked out enough about what's going on. Who thought, who would have thought that in a merit, in a quote meritocratic and technocratic oligarchy that we're living under now, that rank incompetence of the level that we've seen during this administration, certainly over the last month or so, might be what lets the the daylight in and allows some people to recognize that we're in a world of we're, we're in a world of trouble and maybe they should go back and reconsider the way they looked at things uh, you know eight months ago. I mean, I think there are only a very small number of ways that that sunlight gets through. One is rank incompetence being, you know, failing upward. The Peter Principle doesn't even come close to touching it. It's like this is this is Soviet level promotion of of incompetent boobs who happen to have the right ideological uh, but, at least, but at least Malenkov was, was removed, you know, after a month or two. Right. You know, I mean, uh, yeah. they, they had, a, they had a system for what it was worth. <laughs> right. Right. And so, you know, the level of freaking out is important. Another one of course, is when the, the children of this kind of, you know, not quite that upper crust, but the level right below that uh, start seeing that their, their children's futures are seriously put into question. Um, and whether that's through the indoctrination and, and reprogramming in the schools, whether that's through the lack of education, whether it's through the just gross instability of the, the system itself, when those people start getting freaked out, historically speaking, uh, revolutions tend to start getting pushed back. And those people, I can tell you, are very, very far and wide getting freaked right out. These are the people who last year saw all the instability, they saw the riots, they saw the arson, they saw the whole mess. And they said, this is bad. It'll blow over. We have money. We can weather this. How terrible for Minneapolis. Whoops. Or whatever. Whoop, Portland is stupid, but whatever. And it'll blow over. And there's me on Twitter. This will not blow over. This will not blow over. This is the beginning of the attempt of the revolution to take over the country. This will not blow over. They're putting in all their chips right now. Get ready. And, if and as fails, usual, they're putting them in sooner than they want to. It always works that way. Yeah, and that's and that's something we have to capitalize on. Oh, absolutely. That's that's exactly what we have to do. But that's who they were. They were people who thought this will blow over, and now here we are. What eighteen months into COVID or whatever, we're five hundred and thirty-five days to not flatten a damn thing, and um, they're getting freaked out. They're finally realizing, wait, we're almost two years into this. It's not blowing over. What's going on? And uh, so, you know, they're starting to, to mobilize and more importantly, they're starting to ask questions. So that comes back to what am I doing? I'm trying to speak into that void so that they're not looking to the people who want to hire helicopters that we didn't leave in Afghanistan. And, but you are right. The, the key thing is that we have to capitalize upon the fact that their hand keeps being forced ahead of schedule. Trump forced their hand ahead of schedule. Uh, they had to dump a massive amount of media lunacy into the space to where lots of people saw it. Fake news, fake news, Trump said, and nobody believed him at first, or some conservatives did, but most people thought, well, he's exaggerating. Ah, this is an assault on, on the First Amendment. This is an assault on, on, the, on the fourth state or whatever. And then all of a sudden, people are like, holy crap, Trump was right. The news is fake. And so they forced the hand got forced. Then they whatever they did with the election, and I'll make no claims as to what happened in the election last no, year. No, certainly not if this is gonna go on YouTube. That, yeah, but that, people freaked out. Like people anyway, people's fox ears went straight up and like, this wasn't normal. Something feels weird. And you know, so again, a hand was forced. They wanted Trump out so badly. What did we just see? Was it Caitlin Flanagan or something that published some put something on Twitter saying saying, you know, well, we, Biden was like a huge mistake, but we just wanted Trump out so badly. And it's like, you know, you're seeing this everywhere I go right now. And this is to speak into that, you know, truth vacuum that I'm afraid will open up if people aren't being more forthright. I run into people that I'm a lifelong, they whisper it. They always whisper it. I'm a lifelong Democrat. And I agree with every word you say. I'm running into people Everywhere I go, I'm running into people in California. I'm running into people here. I'm running everywhere I go. We must encourage people not to whisper. And it starts with the people on who are already acknowledging themselves to be, I would I say our side, but you consider yourself not a conservative, whatever it is that is fighting this illiberalism, yeah. fighting this, 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 it, to, to use an old uh, Elvis Costello phrase, um, emotional fascism, this mm -hmm. idea that there's only one way to look at the world. Anonymity has its value. 
And there are some things that can only be done under the cover of anonymity, but people have got to stand up and be counted because you're not going to get the support. You're not going to ever coalesce. It, people are looking over their shoulders. Who else? Who else is saying this? And if there's no one else, they're not going to be the first. Just schmucks right. like Lindsay and Coleman. And they're, they're known <laughs> lunatics. Known lunatics. That's us. Um, yeah, but this is the thing is I'm starting to watch. It's changing. The wind has changed. I don't know what's going to happen, but the wind has changed because people have freaked out far enough. And because the wind has changed, um, I'm seeing people speak up. I'm seeing people say, you know, they tell me now that I'm a Democrat. I agree with every word you say. And then somebody else in the room might say me too. But the problem that I keep running into with the people who say that as Democrats is that they're like, well, we've got to find a Democratic Party solution to this problem. And it's not that I'm in like I can put my chips in on the Republicans either because half of them are, are corrupt as well. But you're not going to find one there. That party is more or less wholly controlled right now. Um, they are they are captured. And so, you know, I, I feel for these people. Because I don't have, I, I remember what a wrench it was. I voted all Republican last year. And I'm not a conservative, by the way. That doesn't matter because I'm, I've sided with them. This is where Ben Shapiro's argument in his new book is really good. He says, we have to think in terms of three camps of Americans, conservatives, liberals, and leftists. And right now, what there is is a battle over the, the liberals who are center right through center left. And the leftists have convinced them that conservative evil, conservative bad, conservative stupid, therefore they're siding tentatively with the leftists where they should be their natural allies against illiberal tyranny are actually the conservatives. And the, 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 this, if we think in that tripartite um, framing, the liberals don't have to agree with conservatives on anything except that we can go back to arguing about ourselves normally once we kind of squish the leftist threat down to its normal you know, small percentage rabble rousing problem that, that it always is and always will be. Uh, can that happen? Can that happen? You believe? I think it can happen. I think it's just a matter of, I mean, it's right now it's taking people getting freaked out enough. I'm watching the, if the walkaway movement hadn't been completely shut down by social media, we'd be seeing this thing just I think it would be the most powerful movement in the country, which is, I think, why they shut it down under, of course, completely bogus pretenses. Um, the walkaway movement, the number of people that I see and I hear from on a regular basis who are just, again, everyday normal Americans, whether they tend to vote Democrat or tend to vote Republican, whether they identify as liberal or conservative or centrist or not that interested to care about one side or the other, the number of people that I see that are, are saying things like, well, I'm basically never going to vote for a Democrat again in my life now is just shocking. They have they are lifelong San Francisco Democrat. They are freaking people out. And I hate to say it that the freaking out is part of the apparently necessary equation because nobody will listen to lunatics like us and just do the sensible thing and believe everything I say, obviously. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's working. This is why I'm actually, along with, we mentioned Jack Posobiec briefly a, a few minutes ago. I agree with Jack. I'm actually excited. Nobody is excited about the prospect of a Kamala Harris presidency. I am. Jack is, unless he's changed his position. Bingo. Because Bingo. I call her I call her President Red Pills. Nobody likes her. She's it's going to be so glaring and so grating on people. Joe, for all she's also not gonna she's not gonna take direction. Joe knows how to take direction. He's been doing it even before he you yeah. know, he, he lost his, his, his intellectual edge. He's always been a zombie. Yeah. He's never, and he's it, always been a, per, a, you know, a not barely a midwit. He, he's old, he's sleepy, he's grandpa. He's, he has this non-threatening, you know, cotton fluff around him that even with his gross incompetence has just now been so clearly revealed and his, you know, whatever I, I said before the election that I was going to vote for Trump. One of the main reasons being that Joe is corrupt, and people said that I was just completely insane for saying that. So it's the most obvious thing in the world if you look at his 50 years in politics and um, whatever. Uh, but he's got this veneer of like safe. Everything about Kamala is annoying. And so you pair that with the fact that they're going to also put the pedal to the metal stuff that has become wildly unpopular. Oh, President Red Pills, I'm so excited. Um, 
The only thing I think that can spoil that. it, in my opinion, is Donald Trump running for re-election. Uh, yeah, because he is the magic, the magic sauce for them. The, that that uh, psyops they pulled for four and a half years over him, or five years if we count to this day, because I guess that's, I just heard that all the like, keep Gavin Newsom in California off and governor of California ads are Trump this, Trump that, Trump this, Trump. I went to a thing recently in Houston for, for YAF and did a talk and Mike Pence spoke later the same day. And so there was a planned protest, not of me, but of Pence. And so I'm not particularly interested in Pence. So I skipped the talk and I went outside to see the protest during the protest and um i think like 15 people showed up it was really pathetic <laughs> but they were literally holding up a sign that said mike pence stepped down and it's like they're so mad about trump and pence like that happened in january like where are you that was literally like over six months ago and they're like seven months ago they're like mike pence stepped down that's like their sign and then the wind caught their sign it blew away and they all went home <laughs> i mean it was that sad um, all right Listen, it, it, you know, it, it's, gr it's great talking to you, James. Folks, buy the book, Wake the Neighbors, Shoot the Kids, Cynical Theories. James Lindsay makes it clear to us that he didn't invent it. He wasn't the first one to find it, but, it, but f by all reckonings, it's an extremely sober and important book about the topic of how we got to a large part of the where that we've gotten to. And uh, I thank you so much for spending so much time with me today, James, and having a lot of fun uh, joking and having, and, and having a good time about the most serious threat to our freedom and, and lives that has ever come about during my somewhat longer than your lifetime. No well, question about it. Yeah. I mean, if you can't keep your sense of humor, you're not going to win. Um, because we are, in, that book is about postmodernism and the postmodern aspect of this problem and the rule of, we live in postmodernity, whether you like it or not. And the rule of postmodernity is whoever takes themselves too seriously first loses. And so you have to be able to joke about it. Just to point out, um, yeah, do pick up cynical theories if you can. Uh, but it's a difficult book, uh, people have said, sources are saying. And so just to let people know, there is a so-called young adult adaptation, a kind of simpler, simplified version that's coming out soon called Social oh. Injustice. Um, and it's got young adults. Listen, I got an award for the from the Young Republicans, uh, New York Young Republican Club. So, you know, fairy tales can come true. They yeah. can happen to you. If so you're young at heart. You should you should look for if you if you want an easier read of the same message of cynical theories with less direct quotations from these horrible theorists that are impossible to read. <laughs> this is your this is your opportunity. It's coming out. I don't actually need to check when it's coming out soon, though. This this fall. Um, I'm also currently writing a book like I think it's not easy. It is not an easy read. It is not meant to be an easy read. It's going to be long. You mean the one you're writing, difficult. the one you're writing now? I am writing a book about. The, the the flat honest truth about critical race theory and ties it back i mean i go all the way back to like the mid 18th century in terms of where the philosophical roots dig and and i, I i'm hoping i'm actually just going to publish it through new discourses i'm not even going to bother my company i'm just going to self-publish it through the company i'm not even going to bother trying to go through a six eight month waiting period i want this thing out in the world but it will not be easy it will be very in-depth but it will, I think, be the first definitive honest word on critical race theory that exists in the world. Um, and the, the short answer of what it is is, yes, it is race Marxism, and it needs to be resisted as such. I mean, the whole book is, is probably going to be quite long, probably close to 90,000 well, words. I give myself credit then for my opening question to you. I think that yeah. I nailed it, didn't I? You did. That was, I, that's the doorway because Americans are good people. They have consciences consciousness and consciousness to some extent, maybe hmm. less than they should. And they also have a sense of national guilt about the black experience, which is not unjustified. It's right. not unjustified. And playing on this, we see that far left wing, not so much right wing, I think, movements play on bourgeois guilt. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's us. Anything, just as a simple rejoinder to that, anything that could, like, you said not unjustified, that's correct. Uh, anything 
for those problems, those issues that critical race theory claims it can answer or solve the methods that are rooted in the actual American project that Frederick Douglass spoke about, that Martin Luther King spoke about, that they appealed to, can do it better. There's no re- it's not to say that problems don't exist. It's not to say that there, the legacies and history aren't significant. It is to say that their analysis and approach is not only bad, but a weapon. And it will not result in the outcomes that it wants. It will produce a hyper elite crust of grifters who run the show into the ground. Um, and so other methods are, are, of solving these problems and analyzing these problems are definitely better. James, again, thank you so much. I hope we can do this again. We, we, it, it, I've learned so much in the course of this, and you hardly ever hear me say that because I don't want, hate admitting that I don't know things. But you know a lot of things. Looking forward to hearing more from you. Yeah, I look forward to it too. It was a great conversation. Thanks a lot. So long. For sure. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com, or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.